You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Edward Tenner, who just wrapped up a stint at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton University and is currently a scholar at the Smithsonian. He's had other positions. He used to work at Princeton University Press as an editor, also writes frequently for the Milken Institute's newsletter, and is the author of multiple books, most recently, The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do, which is in many ways, I think, a sequel or an add-on to this book, which was written 25 years ago, Why Things Bite Back, Technology and the Revenge of Unintended Consequences. Also, along the way, you publish this book, Our Own Devices, How Technology Remakes Humanity. Welcome, Edward. Thank you very much, Greg. This book, Why Things Bite Back, this is a book that I found profoundly interesting when I read it probably 20 some odd years ago, because we all think that technology makes the world a better place. And we think that progress moves forward in a, in a fairly linear fashion, or maybe now people talk about it happening in an exponential manner. And yet there's lots of signs that well-being does not increase along with the sophistication of technology, but also that technology oftentimes creates problems or side effects. And sometimes those problems can rise to a level that exceeds the the incremental benefit that the technology was designed to address. You know, you refer to these as revenge effects. I want to dig into exactly what a revenge effect is. How should we think about a revenge effect different from, say, a side effect? How should we think about a revenge effect as distinct from simply a trade-off? Or, well, you know, there's you got to take the bitter with the sweet. What is it that makes a side effect or a just a a cost, a revenge effect. Well, what I saw in the 1980s was that a lot of the new technology that was being introduced far from addressing a problem actually increased it. For example, the introduction of network computing in Princeton University Press was supposed to reduce the use of paper, but I noticed that the paper bins, the recycling bins were filling up faster and faster. And I wrote a piece about that called The Paradoxical Proliferation of Paper. That inspired me to look for a more general version of this, which is that very often the innovations of technology were really more than canceling out the reason for their adoption. And when I started to look, I found that this was a common pattern in many, many things. For example, I found how many of the invasive species, the pests, were not just the result of increased air transportation, increased global trade. Many of them actually had been introduced by scientists, by experts who were solving problems, they thought, but were actually introducing greater problems. I just saw something, for example, about a tree called the Bradford pear, which is very common in the American South. And This was the result of agricultural scientists who were looking for an ideal shade tree, and they imported an Asian tree, which seemed to be just the right thing, except that it was interbreeding with native trees and producing a tree that was really damaging to 
other tree species to native tree species to wildlife. And these were the experts. But I found that quite a few other agricultural innovations were really developed by experts. For example, uh, carp are now, they're a delicacy in Asia, but they're a very serious invasive species in many Midwestern waters. And they were introduced by the secretary of the Smithsonian. So very often you find in the history of these things, the misjudgment of experts who did not really realize the complexity of the world. And this is not to criticize experts or to say that I am anti-experts or anti-expertise, but it's to call for modesty and caution and not promoting innovations in such a way that they become irreversible. That's one of the central points of the book. Well, I think another point of the book is really that, again, it's not about anything being wrong with expertise as much as it is that expertise by its very nature is going to be narrow and experts in one discipline probably should think about consulting with experts in another discipline or maybe should think a little more carefully about side effects. I mean, I think you're really arguing for a science of complexity, a science of interrelated effects. And this, this would potentially require more conversation or discussion among these different experts, right? Isn't that really kind of what you're arguing? Very often, the problems could have been prevented if people had consulted with people in adjacent disciplines, people who would be, for example, more familiar with the way in which imported organisms can interbreed with others, with the way in which organisms are dispersed. One of the consequences of the growth of science in the last century or two has been the proliferation of specialties in which people don't always know the right people in their adjacent specialties who could help them. This was an advantage that I had as a science editor because I really had to survey the field. I had to know specialists in many, many fields. And sometimes I, I saw that people were, might be overlooking something in uh, another field that really pertained to them, my work. And that was one of my reasons for going independent and becoming a full-time writer. Well, in, in business, we talk a lot about how sub-goals can often be in, in conflict with larger goals. So if you have an organization and you tell the, the marketing department, maximize sales, that might actually reduce overall profitability. Or if you tell the manufacturing division, hey, you know, just cut your costs and reward them for that, that could also reduce profitability because of the, the spillover effects across the different divisions. And the, the folks at the highest level of the organization, they're the ones that are supposed to specialize in understanding interactions, really. I mean, that's kind of what strategy is about. It's about having a system view of the different individual components. And, and so the folks at the ground level, they're not really expected to know about the, the spillovers. They're like, hey, you're an expert. We at the cross-functional level will make sure that you're given guidance with respect to spillovers. So isn't it oftentimes kind of a, an organizational design issue in terms of like who's in charge of making the decisions, do we delegate it too far down to someone who's concerned only with what we might think of as an intermediate metric or intermediate goal or a partial goal as opposed to a broader, more inclusive goal? I have found that very often the problem is really at the top, that the metrics are set by the people at the top and it's the people at the top who don't always have the long-term view partly because they feel they're answerable 
looked for quarterly results. And one of the arguments of my newest book, The Efficiency Paradox, is that too much efficiency in the short run makes us less efficient in the long run. And there is case after case of that. Uh, we could go into that a little later, but the point of it is that very often it is the top managers who don't really take a holistic view of their enterprise and who don't understand that sometimes you really need to have more failures in order to have long-term successes. Right. So there, that's about failure to appreciate the temporal spillovers as opposed to maybe the spatial spillovers. That's right. In which case, that's going to happen through all levels of an organization. Disasters play a big role in your book, in the original book, because disasters are highly vivid, right? And they usually kind of motivate action. And so we often make interventions to address these disasters and maybe reduce the probability of these, these disasters. And, and you argue that oftentimes by trying to minimize these disasters, we actually make things worse. And you use a couple different domains. You talk about floods, you talk about fires, we could talk about pandemics. There's all sorts of domains where this is a problem. Maybe dig into those because I found those to be fantastic examples that have illuminated other areas. Like when I think about pandemic response, I can't help but be inspired by what you said with respect to floods and fires. Well, that's such a huge question. And the most striking example that I encountered, in fact, I wrote a separate article about that for the late John Kennedy's magazine, George, was the result of the Titanic tragedy, which was supposedly the lesson that there really had to be lifeboats for all, for every passenger. A lot of people still think that that was the lesson of the Titanic. And so Leading up to legislation, ship owners began to install additional lifeboats on their ships. What could go wrong, right? Well, if you had a ship that was not that stable to begin with, and you added deck stiffening, and you added the weight of the lifeboats, you could turn a not extremely seaworthy ship into a potential disaster. And there was one tragedy like that in Chicago Harbor called the Eastland, in which more passengers actually drowned than on the Titanic. But because these people were young workers from the nearby Western Electric factory in West Suburban Chicago, there was not the kind of international attention that was given to a ship where there were celebrities and multimillionaires and where there are people from all over the world. This was, in terms of networking, a relatively closed community. So it was an intense tragedy for everyone in that neighborhood. But the tragedy was contained in its publicity, and it wasn't until a book was published much later by an economist that documented how this occurred. The other factor was that you had an unpredictable element of human behavior. These young people were unused to seafaring. They were from, after all, they were from like an inland city. And this was a, an annual excursion to a uh, park on Lake Michigan. And so when the ship started to list as more and more people, it was oversubscribed. So more and more people got on and it started to list, and what happened was they amplified it. They made it worse by shifting from one side to another. 
and it finally capsized. And people were really unfamiliar with the layout of the ship. So they could have escaped, but they didn't. All the crew escaped because the crew knew how the ship was constructed. They knew the exits, but the passengers didn't. It was a really, really terrible thing. One that until recently was forgotten until the book appeared and also some of the descendants of the victims have been memorializing it. And now there is a website, there is a lot more attention paid. But I think it's a very important lesson. Another tragedy that occurred in Chicago at about the same time was the Iroquois Theater fire. That really occurred partly because of the way in which the, the exits were constructed. And as a result of the Iroquois Theater fire, you have noticed just about every public place has a so-called panic bar. That is, there is a bar that you press that will open the door. Sometimes there's an alarm if they don't want people to exit in an unauthorized way. But there are legal codes everywhere. And one of the reasons for that was the Iroquois fire. Part of the design flaws include a failure to take into account human factors. So understanding how humans are going to change their behavior in response to these interventions. So Sam Peltzman made this point about, which relates to this concept of risk homeostasis, which you mentioned in the book. So when you mandate seatbelts in cars and people start to drive faster and so forth, and of course, that's not saying that seatbelts are a bad thing, but what it's saying is that any attempts to predict the consequence of the intervention has to factor in how the humans are, are going to respond to this new environment. Risk homeostasis, the idea that if you introduce safety technology, people are going to take more risk is a concept that most safety engineers do not like. It's something that does happen sometimes. But there was a very good book by a General Motors research director named Evans called Traffic Safety and the Driver. And he showed that there was actually a spectrum of responses. There were some cases in which a safety technology really did lead, at least at first, to people taking more risks. And there were others in which, for example, like seatbelts, in which there was a really strong net benefit. So people have been, I think, sometimes too ready to apply their favorite model without double-checking the empirical evidence. Yeah. You mentioned also helmets and football. So if the goal is to eliminate cranium fractures, then helmets sound like a great idea, but then they might lead to increasing numbers of, of concussions. And that was originally concussions. That was not the objective initially, right? Because concussions were not really something that people were concerned about at the time. That's right. One of the paradoxes there is that the adoption of the safety technology may lead people to change their behavior. For example, a spearing, the aggressive use of the helmet, is one of the major causes of that also of spinal injuries. And one of the points that I made and why things bite back is that rugby, which is a very rough sport played without helmets, it really is, is self-limiting because people will not do something that really endangers themselves. You know, the same thing is true in boxing, that bare-knuckle prize fighting was a uh, notoriously bloody sport. And toward the end of the century, there were new rules that mandated the use of boxing gloves. But the problem was that long-term repeated blows, rotational blows, cause very serious brain damage, uh, Parkinsonism, for example. And so you had a case in which you were replacing what were very visible 
catastrophic injuries with less visible long-term chronic injuries. And there is a tendency for catastrophic problems to be replaced by chronic ones. And this is well-known in healthcare studies. It, it was really called a transition, a health transition in which you now have more and more people suffering from long-term illnesses that are much more difficult to cure. And you actually start the book with a discussion of, of healthcare. And I think of this as the curse of, of ceteris paribus. So in scientific methodology, right, you're always trying to think in terms of ceteris paribus. Like if I change this one variable, then how it's going to affect my outcome. But of course, in the real world, like it's never ceteris paribus, right? There's always going to be other changes that happen. So for instance, if we say, assuming that the fist hits the face with the exact same force, right? Well, it seems like having some protection in place would reduce the strength of the blow. But of course, all sorts of other things are going to happen that could change those other factors. And in healthcare, we certainly see the same thing, right? So for many years, people were promoting low-calorie diets and getting rid of sugar and replacing it with artificial sweeteners and everything. And I think all of this was motivated by a faith in the ceteris paribus doctrine, right? It didn't occur that people's eating habits would change as a result or that their metabolic systems would change as a result. And yet these things were advocated by dietary professionals. Shouldn't dietary professionals know a bit about behavior and know a bit about metabolism and all the insight and information was available and out there somewhere, right? Yeah, sometimes, unfortunately, it takes a longer time to discover the downsides of the substitutes, for example, the risks of artificial sweeteners or the fact that margarine actually may be less healthy than butter. So there, there are many cases in which what seems to be healthier is revealed by later research as being not so good. I just saw one posted to social media by a uh, colleague about brown rice. So a lot of people will pay a little extra for brown rice sushi at their local supermarket. But it turns out that brown rice has a lot of chemicals that are actually hazardous and that polished rice is healthier for you. This was something posted by a PhD scientist. So sometimes people assume that because something is natural, it is healthier. But it's also well known that in nature, plants evolve all kinds of poisons to deal with the creatures that are trying to eat them. So if we're not careful, we can sometimes find that these natural substances have poisons that can also affect us. Well, I agree that it takes time for the conclusive scientific evidence to emerge because you need to actually have data and you need to test hypotheses and so forth. But the hypotheses themselves, right, they shouldn't take so long to emerge, right? So when one is advocating a particular position, one should be able to at least think through conceptually what all the potential downsides might be and then put question marks next to them and say, hey, you know, these are the areas where we are likely to see negative consequences and this is where we should direct our research. But oftentimes, I think in the rush to introduce a solution, we uh, kind of downplay the negative consequences, right? Or at least we're attracted to null hypotheses that are biased towards the movement forward of the solution that we proposed. That's right. Well, people have a natural investment in what they've been developing, whether it's people in academia or, or in industry. And that's good because you, you need people to believe in what they're doing and to be advocates. 
The problem is that it's very easy to get into confirmation bias. So you're looking at the results that support what you're doing. You're trying to downplay the other results. So this is true of, of all honest research. So sometimes looking back, you might find other papers that recognize a potential problem. And yet, if you suspend everything new because there is some paper that recognizes a potential problem, then you would not have a lot of positive innovation. So what I suggested in Why Things Bite Back is that we should always go ahead with innovation, but monitor it very closely to see whether these are, are appearing. And if they are appearing, to take action and to take action quickly. And that, of course, is more easily said than done. But to me, that's the only way to optimize the effects of research. I want to dig into the taxonomy that you used just a bit further. So if we really want to isolate what we call a revenge effect from maybe some other adverse consequences of an action or a solution, does it make sense to think the revenge effect actually is when the stated goal is not advanced? Or is it if there are any kind of negative consequences? So you used the example of skin cancer prevention. And so dermatologists could advocate either that you use sunscreen or that you stay out of the sun. So if the use of sunscreen actually increased your rate of skin cancer, that would be a revenge effect. That's right. But suppose that just staying out of the sun reduces skin cancer, but then it increases, like say, other causes of death due to vitamin D deficiency. Would we also call that a revenge effect or would that just be sort of, oh, well, that's, that's just a different domain? Or does it depend on whether the goal of the dermatologist is to reduce skin cancer or is the goal of the dermatologist to actually keep you healthy? That's a very interesting way to put it because in the framework of dermatology, that would not be a revenge effect if it caused the disease that some other specialist had to treat. On the other hand, in, in the domain of the Hippocratic Oath, you could say that it was a revenge effect. But you could also have a revenge effect that would be true, let's say, within dermatology. In other words, if the substances in the sunblockers were harmful to the skin, that would be like a pure dermatological effect. Or for example, if the result of the sunblockers was that people would spend a lot more time in the sun and the sunblockers were only partially effective and people actually got more sun exposure, more ultraviolet exposure as a result of that, that would be maybe the purest form of a dermatological revenge effect. I want to get back to the floods and the fires because actually since the publication of your book, I think that the conventional wisdom among experts has actually moved in your direction dramatically. So we used to do almost everything possible to suppress forest fires at the very first indicator. And there's still plenty of cases where we do that. But I think that the forestry folks have realized that small fires actually prevent big fires, right? And that we've made a huge mistake by engaging in fire suppression over the last century because it's just created an ever-increasing need for ever more aggressive fire suppression. And it's ultimately going to reach a point where we're not going to be able to suppress fires at all. And I think another example of this would be antibiotics, where I think there's fairly widespread consensus that, hey, just give everybody antibiotics for everything back in the 50s, even though, of course, the people who created the antibiotics warned against it. Among the medical profession, there wasn't a whole lot of 
concern, but I think we're, we're getting to a point where antibiotics might not work at all. And so the administration of antibiotics is actually going to make people more, you know, has an aggregate making people more vulnerable to pathogens. Those are two really great examples, and they have something in common, which is that there was an element of human behavior that was not necessarily completely foreseeable that made them worse. Now, in the case, for example, of fires, what you were mentioning had been recognized by experts. It had not yet fully reached the public, but people had been talking about it. In fact, when I was at Princeton University Press, I sponsored the standard history of forest fire in the United States by a, a friend who was appropriately named Stephen Pine, P-Y-N-E, who is the great expert on the history of forests and forest fires and actually worked as a uh, forest firefighter before he got his PhD. What he mentioned is that at this so-called wildland interface, there are more and more people who want to move to heavily forested areas that are away from the congestion and the, the air pollution of cities. And so you have this exurban sprawl that you see, especially in California. And this form of pioneering, which might be very sensible for an individual, when you have a lot of little communities like that that are nestled in highly combustible forests, then you have a really large dilemma for public policy because then the firefighters have to make special efforts to rescue those communities, to provide ways out and so forth. The same is true of antibiotics. So people sometimes think, oh, it's the pharmaceutical companies, it's the doctors who are pushing all of this. And to some extent, they're right. But very often, there's a very strong element of patient demand. There are many patients who will insist on a prescription for antibiotics, even in cases where it's a viral infection and the doctors tell them that it's not going to work. They may just go to another doctor. So physicians are also under pressure from this folk medicine and folk ideas about medical treatments, not only in the United States, but overseas. And that element of unpredictable human reaction to new technology is one of the most serious problems because, for example, it also accounts for the trampling, the crowd scenes of, such as we recently saw, where there is an element of crowd behavior that has been difficult to model. And when I was at a conference in Europe 20 years ago, I met an engineer who actually uses physical models to evaluate the movements of people. He is, for example, a uh, consultant to shipbuilders. So if you're building a cruise ship and you want to have a safe evacuation, he has models that will help you design the corridors and so that people don't trample each other on their way to the lifeboats. Right. Well, I think also that this applies to things like pain relief. So I was in the hospital recently. It was my only time in a hospital and they kept offering me opiates. They just offered me repeatedly. And I've had lots of friends who are in a similar boat where they were offered multiple doses of opiates. And, and of course I asked them, I said, why are you offering me these opiates? Which I said no to. And they said, well, we want patient comfort. And I was like, well, how much comfort am I going to have when I'm sleeping on the streets of San Francisco, like begging fentanyl off people, you know, like that's not super comfortable. But I think from their perspective, it's like they only have me for a couple of days and they're going to get a score at the end of the three days. And three years later, when I'm living on, I'm homeless on the street, 
they're not going to be evaluated for that, right? So they, they actually think they're doing me a favor, but they're not. You have pointed to a very interesting form of risk, and it's a risk associated with metrics. So with the web, people are rating hospitals, they're rating their treatment. So what they were concerned about is if you downrated them, if you said they weren't compassionate, they were denying you the opiates that you needed, then they could suffer serious consequences. So in one sense, they were acting rationally, and the other, from the standpoint of society and your long-term welfare, they were not acting rationally. This is also very common with any kind of metric that it may be very good in the short term, but it's imperfect in studying holistically all the long-term consequences of applying that metric. Yeah, I think that we tend to prioritize when we're designing metrics, we prioritize kind of the visible over the invisible, the easy to measure over the difficult to measure, kind of the near versus the distant, the now versus the later, the vivid versus the less vivid. And we are more concerned about familiar risks than unfamiliar risks. And so this skew towards those sorts of metrics ultimately has negative consequences. And I think you've you've talked about them really well in, in all of the books. And I think you offer an alternative approach in the Why Things Bite Back to dealing with problems. We'll get into the later elaboration of that, but you call for the use of cunning as opposed to like frontal attacks and you suggest finesse. And I guess this is kind of like a judo approach. Exactly. Where you try to manage forces and channel them. And flooding is a great example where we used to just build these dikes And then when there's a flood, that just means you got to build a bigger dike and that creates a narrower, faster, more aggressive channel. And then you have a bigger flood. And and so now we've actually moved to a world where we were opening up floodplains after the recent Mississippi flood and got to give the the river like some room to breathe. There's other examples of this, like figuring out ways to encourage viruses to evolve, to be less pathogenic. Could you talk a bit about this idea of finesse? How should practitioners think. Oh, my other great example that I love is traffic circles. I had Tom Vanderbilt on the show and he wrote a whole book on traffic. And paradoxically, if you slow down traffic, people can get from point A to point B more quickly. So all of these interventions are very paradoxical. How did you come up with this idea of of finesse? It was really something that jumped out at me from looking at successful strategies. I actually saw one traditional example the other day when walking on a canal towpath near my home. New Jersey once had a really great system of canals for coal and and other commodities, and one of them passed near Princeton. And what they had along the canal was a, a spillway. It was like a natural way for the canal to shed excess water into a natural stream so that it would also be a way that there were mules that were pulling the canal boats and then the spillway also let the mules have a drink. And I thought that at the time, this was like the early 19th century, and in some ways they were more sophisticated about such things than we have been recently. Well, in the new book, you kind of take on the concept of efficiency, and this goes right to my heart because I'm in the business school, I'm an economist, and efficiency is our God. And so, you know, we're, we're doing everything we can to promote efficiency. And of course, with the rise of big data, the promise of efficiency is getting ever more closer to our grasp, at least we believe. And you argue that the single-minded pursuit of efficiency is ultimately not only creating all sorts of side effects, but ultimately 
can reduce efficiency if we understand efficiency correctly. In other words, the efficiency that we're pursuing is really a, it's an intermediate partial version of what we should be thinking of as efficiency. Could you give us the rough description of the thesis? What I was saying is that as you focus too much on short-term metrics and short-term results, you're overlooking the need for experimentation and failures and losses that will lead to greater long-term benefits. It's really as simple as that. And I like to give examples from the industry that I was in, book publishing, because so many of the best-selling greatest books would have been declined if people had used marketing research and other metrics if they'd studied results. For instance, when I was a student, senior at college, I met a famous publisher who lived in town and he was telling me that, that in publishing, we know that some things just don't sell. One of them was books about Indians. And then a few years later, there was a whole wave of extremely successful books on Native American culture. This happens again and again in publishing. For example, Moby Dick was really considered a failure. It got bad reviews at first. If there was like an AI that was supposed to evaluate the prospect for books, it probably would have been turned down. Harry Potter was turned down by 20 publishers. And the reason for that is that a lot of extremely successful things, a lot of best-selling works are initially a little bit strange. They're different. And so people who are using experience, people who are consulting their databases will really be unable to pick up on that. Sometimes you have to put something out there and see if it works or not. And in most cases, it, it won't work. But in the cases that it does work, it can be spectacularly successful. So it's not necessarily a bad thing to use these metrics, but it's also important to let your intuition run sometimes. In the case of the publisher who published Harry Potter, I saw the exhibition from the author's files at the New York Historical Society before it closed. And it was really the young daughter of this editor who was shown the, the Harry Potter manuscript and loved it. And she was the one who really convinced her father to buy the book. So sometimes one person like that, a, an extremely small sample, can be more powerful than all of the sophisticated metrics that you have. Sure, but isn't this just sort of a restatement of the explore versus exploit trade-off? So in a world where everything is relatively stable and the training data is comparable to any kind of new data that you're getting, and in that world, it makes sense to strive for optimal efficiency, but in the world of innovation, you need to tolerate some of these messier ways of doing things. And maybe you even need a strategy for inspired inefficiency. You mentioned 3M, for instance, when they adopted Six Sigma, which is kind of the, the gospel of, of efficiency, it really kind of strangled a lot of the innovation. So is that just a misapplication? Say, hey, let's just reserve this for a specific domain and, and then protect the creative kids over here from all the managers? I don't think there's any one-size-fits-all solution, but the point of it is that where there is a possibility that measurement may not be complete, that there may be some great success that doesn't meet the criteria, then it's really wise to allow scope for intuition. One of the 
examples that I saw recently was about employment software, resume screening software, yes. video, sometimes now video interview screening software. And a sociologist has coined the phrase structural holes. And a structural hole is a situation in an organization that has a need that it doesn't yet know exists. And then somebody shows up and solves that problem. And everybody says it was genius, but people didn't really expect it that way. And one of my favorite examples concerns the invention of the steel-belted radial tire at Michelin. The key inventor or co-inventor of that was a man who worked in their graphic arts department. And management saw that he had a creative knack for solving problems. He developed a circular slide rule for certain kinds of measurements. So they transferred him to R&D, and there he worked with an engineer and developed the geometry behind the modern steel-belted radial tire. This was an old-style patriarchal company. It was not modern management at all. But they had an intuition that here was somebody who might have something new and interesting to bring into their R&D. Another one of my favorite examples, and one that's fairly common actually, is the power of immigrants to fill a need that people didn't know exists. Most people by now have heard of Bill Gates's stock photo service Corbis, which was the Bettman archive before he bought it. And it was founded by a musicologist named Otto Bettmann, who had training as a librarian and was the library director of the Prussian State Art Museums in the early 1930s, a very responsible position. And in that position, he had developed a classification system for works of art, and he also made many, many exposures of works of art on film that he was planning to use. Well, when the Nazis came to power, the racial laws eliminated him because of his Jewish origins, and so he emigrated to the United States, and the customs official thought there, here was this eccentric librarian with these trunks of film, so what value could there be in that? Well, when he got to New York, there was already a flourishing illustrated magazine scene, for example, Life and followed by Look. So these magazines needed historical documents. Well, here was Dr. Bettman with his trunk of exposures and his classification system. So he launched an extremely successful company and launched a whole stock photo industry because he was somebody who had come from a very different environment and brought something that was needed, but that nobody had defined before he came. So, I mean, a lot of what you're describing is, we call it serendipity, right? And chance, and you have to have, leave some stuff to chance, but isn't there a way that you could algorithmically design serendipity? <laughs> Could we make serendipity more efficient, right? I mean, I have a lot of serendipitous encounters that are completely worthless. And then you have a great serendipitous encounter. You're like, dang, if I could have more of those, then I'd do more serendipity. Well, there were two examples of that that I can think of. Uh, one is an old example from the interwar period or the immediate post-war period of a system for innovation and invention called TRIZ, T-R-I-Z which is a niche consulting field here. And TRIZ was based on an exhaustive study of Soviet patents. 
by a man named Altshuler. And Altshuler was trying to find a grammar of invention and innovation. In other words, he was trying to define all of the ways that you could transform something or do something differently and study the way in which inventors had unconsciously applied these principles to their uh, patents, to their inventions. And he published a system called TRIZ. Well, I don't think it really caught on in the Soviet Union just because of the nature of Soviet planning, but there are TRIZ consultants in the United States and elsewhere. And I haven't seen any formal evaluation of that, but they do have what you are describing. They have a serendipity system that looks at all the possible things that you can do to do something differently and better. And then with this system, the consultant can hopefully help you to find the avenues that you should, or your staff should pursue. So that's really great. There's a service like a chat room called Lunch Club. This is not a plug for them. I am not a shareholder or anything, but I joined because I was invited. It's really invitation only at this point. I joined because I was invited and this seemed to me a really natural way to test the powers of artificial intelligence serendipity. The people I would be matched with were people who shared my interests and values. And I've been on this for over a year now, and I've had some really fascinating matches. And in just about every case, with just about everybody I've spoken to, I've learned something. They were in all kinds of different industries. There was one person, one person whom I knew from scientific meetings because he had also been a science editor in the 1980s. So that was really the only match from my actual background. But most of them were people who were doing very different things, developing pharmaceuticals, coaching, just about everything you can imagine, especially in the high-tech space. But each of them had a really interesting story, and I hope that I was able to contribute something on my side. So I would not at all rule out the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning to promote serendipity. I think it's definitely possible and, and should be done more often. Well, you spent some time at the Institute for Advanced Study, and, and I know that place is famous historically for the teas and drinks and interactions that these folks had, even though they were from widely dispersed disciplines. And you've written about the office and how the physical landscape of the office is something which will always have some proponents and, and some opponents. Do you think that the move to online interactions is going to somehow negatively impact our ability to engage in serendipitous encounters? Because you have to kind of schedule a, a Zoom call with someone, right? That's a real issue. When the Bell Labs building was dedicated in Murray Hill, New Jersey, after the Second World War, it was built in a way that was supposed to encourage informal collaboration and discussion among research scientists. And to judge from the results of the old Bell Labs, it was spectacularly successful. In fact, a number of other research institutes were built with the same principle and the same idea in mind. And I, I was a visitor there when I was an editor, and I saw that happening, and I worked with a number of scientists from Bell Labs. So that was really a classic case of how that 
could work out. The Institute also is a fascinating one because, as you said, it's one where people informally get to know each other and can contribute to each other's ideas. I certainly benefited from that. I got to know, for example, Freeman Dyson. Freeman was really great. I mean, he pointed my way to some of the most interesting unintended consequences. And he told me, for example, about an episode at the time of the Legionnaire's disease outbreak in which an epidemic of failures of IBM tape drives, the old-fashioned tape drives, was reported. And the executives at IBM just could not figure out why these should all be malfunctioning at the same time. So they assigned this to a group of researchers at their Almaden laboratory who investigated. They found that all of these tape drives had been placed next to air vents. What had happened was that after the Legionnaires outbreak, because Legionnaires bacilli are kind of endemic in HVAC systems, they added an antibacterial solution to these waters. And that was successful in suppressing Legionnaires disease. But this was formulated with minute traces of tin. And when it was vaporized. So you can see that these particles of tin were coming off the ventilating systems and they were fouling the tape heads. And so they moved the drives away and they reformulated the bactericide. But this just shows you the reach of unintended consequences, because I think this was the first time in which a machine has indirectly suffered from a human disease. <laughs> right. Well, you also have another article where you recently published about what you call the deep corporation, and you mentioned Bell Labs and the old GE and Xerox Park and Boeing, right? So Boeing was once this deep corporation. They've all kind of tried to move towards a more flexible model, and certainly, you know, at business schools, we encourage this. What's been the impact of this shift? Although, of course, we see companies like Google and, and Microsoft, I think it's fair to describe them as kind of the new deep corporations, but just using Boeing as an example, did this move necessarily lead to the disaster of the recent Boeing crashes? There's a new book that is based on a lot more material than I was able to study when I wrote that piece that argues that it was even more serious than I had presented in my essay and that it was really a result of an attempt to improve shareholder value. So there is a revenge effect in, in pursuing shareholder value to the exclusion of longer term goals because the shareholders definitely did not benefit from the disaster of the 737 MAX, and I'm sure that they suffered because of that. But the contrast that I drew was between the development of the 747, which was done in record time by just an amazing group of extremely talented people, some of the best engineers in the world. And when you compare that with the 737 MAX, what was very interesting was that the 737 MAX was designed to be a cost-cutting means for airlines around the world without very experienced pilots to upgrade without expensive additional training. And to meet that goal, they made all kinds of compromises, each one of which might have seemed defensible at the time, but together were 
a recipe for disaster when combined with the kind of training that prevailed in many countries. So the lesson is really that there is a case for depth and that enlightened investors and investment analysts should recognize that and not reward the people who are killing the goose that laid the golden eggs. Right. And well, the increasing autonomy in aviation, we're going to see increasing autonomy in automobiles. That's happening very quickly. But it seems like once you embark down that road, it's an irreversible path. You're just developing even more pressures for more autonomy because as humans start to rely more on these systems, their attention gets disengaged. And if you have to re-engage it, as we saw in the Air France case, it's kind of hopeless. So you need to then, once you get to like level three autonomy, you better then get pretty darn quickly to level five, right? Yeah. There are two things involved there. One is a broader philosophical issue of how much room you leave to the human operator to intervene when the technology seems to be malfunctioning. This is a very difficult thing because of the time constraints involved. could be a matter of seconds. And what is usually the case is that the human pilot, even an expert one, is usually wrong and the automatic system is is usually right. But there have been tragic exceptions to that. The more interesting one is the difference between aviation autonomy and the autonomy of vehicles in traffic. Because on one hand, you have a relatively limited number of aircraft flying well-established routes, very closely monitored by controllers and satellites and others. On the roads, you have millions and millions of automobiles in very different condition with drivers of very different temperaments. And the central problem on the ground is that it's impossible to program for every possible contingency for every situation. I'll give you an example. I was about to turn left into my apartment complex and they were putting down new pavement and there was a yellow tape there. Now, if if I had a car that had today's automatic sensors, it probably would have taken that left turn and driven right over the fresh asphalt just because this was the kind of anomaly that is very, very hard to program for. So it can be very good for, let's say, if you're inattentive and there's some pedestrian who comes across your path. Yes, it can save lives that way, but you are going to reach situations, for example, anomalous situations where people are proceeding by eye contact, where you you need to have what the philosophers call the theory of mind. You need to be able to anticipate what people are going to do, maybe even look at their facial expressions. So The problem with all these automated systems is that they can be accurate in 99.999, like six sigmas number of cases. However, the number of automotive interactions, potential ones, is so large that even if it's a tiny number, it can lead to serious, really, really serious accidents. And there is also the factor that a lot of people's cars are not in the optimal condition for that. And the fact that the infrastructure is not yet and is unlikely to be constructed to be optimized 
for full autonomy. You may have like a curb that doesn't look quite right. You don't want to drive over it. You don't want to pull over. There are lots of things still like that. You would really have to construct an almost perfect infrastructure for that to work perfectly. So I think there's a really a good middle ground that that kind of autonomy can work very well on limited access highways for long distance driving. I would really welcome that. I would love to have a, a car with that because that would eliminate a lot of the anxiety and stress. I think you could also have systems that would automatically keep proper distance between cars. I've wondered why they don't have that already. It's certainly technologically possible. It should be possible to enforce the legal requirement of enough space between cars. The police enforce only speed, but there are lots of other things that contribute to accidents. And you could build that into cars, but again, you have the human factor. A lot of people mistakenly believe that following close to another car will make them go faster. And I can tell you, I, I was a keynote speaker at a meeting of safety engineers, and we saw really great demos of that. And people who think that they are going to arrive somewhere faster by overtaking cars and weaving and so forth. When you look at the net gains over a journey, they might be gaining a matter of seconds or just a minute from all of that frantic passing. So partly it's a matter of having the right psychological orientation toward driving. And it really was an eye-opening for me to speak at that meeting because I saw things now for the first time from the standpoint of professional safety engineers. By the way, another thing that I learned there is that in the U.S. Navy, for example, there is an incredibly sophisticated culture of preventing accidents on shipboard, especially on aircraft carriers, by letting anyone interrupt something, no matter what their rank, if they see something unsafe. It's really a model. So what do Navy safety officials really concentrate on now? It's driving to and from the base. That is a more dangerous thing than actually what people are doing on shipboard. So there are all kinds of educational programs on safe driving. The same thing is true of a lot of hazardous occupations like tree trimmers. They have all kinds of training for that, but they have to constantly remind their staff of safe driving procedures. Right. I think we should do that at my school, right? So I have a lot of people that commute in their cars and We've got a lot of hygiene things in place right now in the classroom, but I think driving to school is probably the most dangerous part of their day. Now, in this book, we don't have time to get into some great chapters on, on healthcare, on education, on wayfinding, but towards the end of the book, you offer up six strategies for dealing with a world of big data. And I found these to be, I think they were too short. I think you could have spent a lot of time elaborating on these six strategies. I was wondering if you could just kind of dig into some of your favorites. I mean, there's this idea of creative waste, desirable difficulty, right? Cognitive bootstrapping, analog versus digital. Could you talk a bit about those strategies if you were advising someone how to deal with the world of big data? We already talked a little bit about creative waste and how in publishing, for example, you, you really need to take risks on a lot of books based on your intuition. And most of the time you'll lose money, but the idea is to limit your losses, to take them in a measured way, not to have a huge first printing, for example, but to be ready to go back to press. And by the way, I think that's very consistent with the venture capital approach that we talk about a lot in Silicon Valley. That's right. 
So the other is about analog and desirable difficulty. So one of the things I discovered in reviewing the psychological literature on, on reading and understanding is that digital and analog, digital and paper texts have different advantages, that people who read the physical book get a better holistic view of the book's arguments, whereas people who read the electronic version may see more detail. And I can tell you this from my personal experience as a book reviewer. I really like to have both. I like to do my basic impressions of a book with a physical copy, and then I like to go back and maybe search, not just rely on the index, but to do a free text search to see whether I might have overlooked something. I didn't see something, something that should have been in the book, but maybe it was, and I just didn't notice it. So I can then use the electronic version to check to see if the author mentioned it. So the same thing I argue is true of GPS and the physical map. The physical map, as I discovered when I took a trip to another speaking engagement in the Carolinas, was that the physical map gave me a much better overview of the total journey and the possible stopover points. Do they even make physical maps? Anymore? I mean, I've been saving physical maps in my car for 20 years and Everyone makes fun of me for them. They're like AAA maps from the 90s. I mean, do they even make them anymore? Oh, they certainly do. You can go to any bookstore or online at road atlases like the uh, Rand McNally. My favorite is the Michelin road atlas. Oh, yeah. And uh, they will have like maps of every state. For 20 bucks or so, you can have a really current one. And before the pandemic, when I was traveling, I, I would use it just to get that overview. However, what I discovered was that if you're in a complex situation, for example, looking up restaurants on my way, I found that there was one restaurant in the Washington suburbs that really sounded desirable, a Chinese restaurant. And I thought, well, I really have to stop here. Also stopping there would let me avoid the most serious traffic around the Beltway, which is always a good thing to avoid. Where was the restaurant? The restaurant, I could get the name for you, actually. It was in the western suburbs of Washington, beyond the Beltway, a place that I hadn't really heard of. But the road map of the area was so complicated that if I had been using a physical map for that, in the best case, I would have just been lost for a long time. In the worst case, I would have crashed trying to read the map while driving, especially in the evening. So with the GPS, with Waze, I was able to just take every turn correctly. They not only show it on the map, but there's a speaking voice that will direct you. And so this was really a lifesaver for me. But on the other hand, I don't think I would necessarily use Waze to plan a long trip because it doesn't give me that kind of overview. So you can see this pattern of analog and digital. The analog is really good for the overview, the digital is really good for the details. Well, I once got a $300 ticket for uh, using Google Maps in my car, and I, maybe I should have just taken that paper map and spread it out over the steering wheel. And A ticket for using Google Maps? I had not heard of that. In California, yeah. In California, it's illegal to look at a GPS? Unless it's glued to your dashboard, in which case it's okay. Well, thank you for telling me about that. If I ever rent a car in California and I'm tempted to use that, seems a lot safer if I'm holding it in front of me instead of having to bend over and look down. But hey, you know. Well, I have a holder that clamps 
thank God I had an older model that has a slot for CDs. So it clamps in the CD slot uh-huh. and it holds it at just the right angle. Now, I think actually with the newer models, you can do that legally because with the newer models, at least the iPhone can sync to the car's display. Yeah. So you are not reading it from the smartphone. You're reading it from the display and it's legal. But I appreciate your mentioning that. In fact, something I recently posted to social media, I was browsing through the physical books in my local public library and I saw the New Jersey State Motor Vehicle Code. Do you know how many pages that is in New Jersey? Pretty long, I'm imagining. 1,540 pages. Try putting that in your glove compartment unless you have an escalator or something. Well, I wouldn't want to have to reference it in real time if I was dubious about my driving behavior. But I want to end with, there's a piece of advice that you give at the end of the efficiency paradox, which is that you're advocating for the creation of a new generation of information athletes. And I, I really love this term, the information athlete. And I think when we talk about athletes, Oftentimes when we talk about a football player and we say, well, you know, that person's a good quarterback or that person's a good athlete. I think when we say that they're a good athlete, we mean that they're very versatile and they have the capacity to potentially even play multiple positions and have that level of fitness that they're not going to be caught off guard or get winded too easily by having to do some of the tough work. Could you describe how you think of this term information athlete and how can we become information athletes? By that, I mean that Someone who is proficient at combining analog and digital sources, because again, I argue that they're really complementary, also can learn over time the strategies for a successful search that does not rely too much on Google or other search engines, because those can be sometimes optimized for selling advertising rather than for giving you the best results. One of the things I mentioned in the book is a study by Microsoft that suggested that if there were more time for a search, that the search results could be higher quality. So what an information athlete has to do, or anybody who aspires to be an information athlete, is to practice and learn the techniques and tricks of forcing the uh, search engines to give you higher quality results, to modify your search And the search engines themselves have tips for that. But it's like athletics. It's like music. It's something that has to come from practice. And it's also a gap in the educational system because librarians know how to do this. A really good reference librarian is a champion information athlete. And I've known librarians like that. A really fantastic resource. They can sometimes find things that you have failed to find anywhere else just because they have such experience. So... People need to get that knowledge, and unfortunately, the librarians don't have enough time to really teach that systematically, and the professors are so used to being able to do literature searches in their own fields because they're familiar with who's who, they're familiar with the sources, but they really can't see anything from the standpoint of a beginner. And one of the things I refer to in the book is the curse of knowledge. That is, the more somebody knows, the harder it is for them to explain something to a beginner because it's difficult for them to go back and put themselves in the shoes of what they were doing when they were starting to learn the subject. But what I'm saying is that there is such a thing as what I call cognitive bootstrapping, that if you pay attention to how you're using information, to what works in searches, gradually you can pick up the skills to become an information athlete.
Yeah, that's certainly something we need to be teaching more of. Well, Edward, wish we had more time. I would love to dig deeper into your thoughts on the pandemic response, because uh, I think it illustrates a lot of the concepts that you've been talking about for decades, in particular, how focus on narrow metrics or a focus on the near term instead of the far term can often create problems <laughs> that are unintended and maybe even bigger than the problems that they're designed to solve. So thank you so much, Edward. I appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. I really appreciated this opportunity. And by the way, the unintended consequences of pandemics and medicine are such a huge topic that it would just take a lot more research. But the problems that we have are leading to all kinds of really interesting discoveries about the history of epidemics and about strategies for preventing future ones. So again, thank you so much for this opportunity. Talk soon. Talk soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.